Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast this year in January. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Retired USU professor Richard Ratliff has developed what he calls the theory of relationism, which he hopes will help us bridge the many divides we're experiencing in our increasingly polarized society. He's going to join me this hour to explain. Former State Representative Ed Redd and former Logan City Councilman Herm Olson will also join us to talk about how they and others have successfully reached across the aisle to get good things done. They'll join us later in this hour. First up, a conversation with Richard Ratliff. So I guess maybe first of all, Dr. Ratliff, let's get a little sense of you. So professor of accounting, I think. That's correct. For, mm-hmm. for many years, now retired. Yes, mm-hmm. um, many years. Now retired for many years. <laughs> you're, you're, you're a very vigorous, you're in your 70s, very vigorous, and so I forget. Um, so one wouldn't automatically assume that an accounting professor would come up with something called relationism. How did that happen? Well, it's, it only became what I call relationism very, very recently. Where it started was here at Utah State. Well, it may actually before Utah State because I was working overseas at another university and working with the government uh, there and, was, and it was New Zealand. And what had happened there was that there was a, an election in 1984 where New Zealand overnight became not one of the most socialistic countries in the world, which it was before that election, but one that was developing itself in a global free market and responding to that global free market. So when the Labor Party was elected in 1984, everything changed and they started privatizing uh, virtually everything in the country. And that was wreaking havoc with the accountants in that country and and the system and the auditing system that they had in that country. And as I was teaching, a person came in one day and said, uh, Richard, we understand that you're here and you've done some work in the United States and you've written this book. And and do you think you might help us? And we talked about it a while and I did. And as a result of that work, uh, there was an, uh, an award created in the country by the Institute of Internal Auditors of New Zealand. And they gave the award uh, the first year to a man who was a specialist in quality management and quality auditing. And when he got it, I figured I needed to learn something about it. Shortly after, I moved here to Utah State University where the Shingle Prize was awarded and was named to a review board to help award the Shingle Prize to these wonderful manufacturers who had adopted uh, the Shingo system of uh, management, lean management. And I didn't know much about it, so I started studying. And it was confusing to me, and I spread everything out one day and looked at it and finally realized this is about relationships. This is, this is, there's nothing highly technical about this, although there was a lot of technology to it, but the foundation wasn't, wasn't technical. And I said, this is about relationships. I'll just go to the people on campus here who know about relationships. So I started in the management department and said, tell me about a general theory of relationship management. And head of the management department said, I don't know of such a thing. And we talked for a long time. And and both of us agreed, of course, that management is about relationships, but there's not a central general theory that holds it all together. And so then I went over to the psychology department 
because they they work in relationships or specialists in relationships and ask a psychology professor over there, well, tell me about a general theory of relationships. And she said, I'm not aware of such a thing. We talk about relationships. We work with relationships. There, it's, you know, there's an immense field of psychology, which is all about relationships, but I'm not aware of a central theory, a cohesive theory of relationships. And so I said, well, I'll go to the mother of all disciplines, philosophy. <laughs> and I went and talked to a philosophy professor, and I'd like to learn something about the philosophy of relationships. He gave the same answer. We deal in relationships. Philosophy is all about relationships and society and man and how we get along together. But he said, I'm not aware of a philosophy of relationships. And I realized that I was in deep water. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally said, well, you know, I'll just have to go out and figure out because this, the Shingo Prize was about the Shingo system of management. And from all of the things that I could see that I had spread out on the table there, and I couldn't put them all together, couldn't fit them all together, it was clear to me we were talking about relationships. Lean management is about manufacturing, but the principles of lean management apply to virtually everything, everything we do, every organization, every process, et cetera. And so the, the topic was becoming very large. So I finally went out and did my own research and uh, came up with a, what I feel like is a, a theory of relationships, a philosophy. Mm. And found, it's the foundation of human relationships in society, um, however small or large that society might be. And wound up consulting in companies and trying the ideas and found that, that the principles of healthy relationships – and the principles of things that cause relationships to be unhealthy worked in virtually every setting. And we had a chance to work in large organizations, small organizations, international organizations, family organizations, not-for-profit organizations, governmental, educational, in many, many settings. And the principles worked everywhere. So I had a chance to, op I had the opportunity to work a variety of places with these particular principles and found that they work in the business world and, and the social world. And the politics of our day has been in trouble for a long time. And what I discovered in the relationship work that I did, the research that I did, and the consulting that I did, I found that People are following more of a power-based system, philosophy. Even our institutions have become power-based. And the notion of power is that at its ground level is I can do what I want and you can't do anything about it even if it harms you. And I have the power to have my way even if it might harm some other people. And, in, and we've reached the point now where not only do we want our way, but we want it to hurt some other people in many settings. Mm -hmm. and, and the arguments, the political arguments we hear now, you know, I'm right and you're wrong, and you have to admit you're wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so we're in an, an unhappy place now. And everything you said about politics, I think it's, it's self-evident. We're, we're experiencing that, and people are reacting in different ways from just withdrawing into apathy, right, and going yes. into confusion, or maybe turning it up to 11 and fully participating in the conflict to confuse, in confusion and everything. We are, I think all of us are casting about for, or many, most of us casting about for, it's got to be a solution. It's got to yes. be a solution. So tell me, the, the thumbnail, you know, the elevator pitch, what is relationism? 
When we talk about relationism, we can summarize it in four basic ideas. And the first is the foundational principle that sets up the whole notion of relationism, and that is that good relationships are better than bad relationships. This may seem even trite, certainly obvious, but as we see in our lives those things around us where things seem to be working best, we're going to find good relationships almost always involved. And the things that keep us up at night, the problems that we have, usually are going to be relationship problems. So we begin this whole thing with this foundational principle that we're seeking good relationships. The second basic idea is that the primary purpose of good government is good relationships. When we think of the need for government, we're thinking of the needs of managing a society and encouraging a society that works. And when we think of society, we're thinking of a network of relationships. And as those are healthy, things work better. When the relationships are unhealthy, things tend to be more difficult and do not work as well. And what we need government for is to create an environment where relationships, good relationships, are established and nourished and protected. And we need this environment where certainly good relationships can flourish. The third basic idea is that the means, the primary means of good government, are healthy relationships, where we learn to work together, even with those with whom we may disagree, we will find that it's much easier to solve society's problems and to build a healthier and happier society among all of the people with whom we, we live, whether it's close or whether it's far. The fourth idea, basic idea of relationism, is that our best public servants are going to be those with the best relationship skills. We find that many of our public servants and many of our public institutions now seem to be operating on the basis of power and gaining power and having our way, even if it means at the expense of someone else. And throughout the history of this country, and certainly even in modern history, we find that when we work together, we do far better than when we work against each other. So as we go along, we'll apply this to, to politics, which is, a, we all agree, is the, that's the, <laughs> that's the, yes. the big problem. Uh, but before we do that, before we go along uh, today, I just maybe an example, and uh, I wouldn't have expected this except you told me about it, Dr. Ratliff. <laughs> you worked with the Fiji national basketball team. Yes. Tell me about that. My wife and I were doing some work in Fiji, and uh, we were working with the school systems down there. And um, I was in my office one day, and the head of the Fiji national basketball team came in my office. And he was looking for something else when he came into the office. He said, I've heard about what you're doing here in the schools. Can you help me in another office here in, the, in, in town? And I said, sure. And once he heard what I was doing, he said, uh, can you work with sports teams? Do you work with sports teams? He said, I have... I'm responsible for coaching the Fiji National I'm the head coach for the Fiji National Basketball Team and we have the South Pacific Games coming up in 9 weeks. And he said I have a group of really good players from all over the country. Well Fiji's not a big country but he said I have some really fine basketball players there but they're all hot dogs. 
they all want to be the star and they don't want to work together. And he said, it sounds to me like some of these principles would work there. Would you come? And so my wife and I went and we had some meetings with them and we talked with them. And at the very beginning of their workouts, uh, we were ready with this particular plan that we had. And we had a team meeting and we set up a a plan that'll take a little while to describe it. I won't go into the details, but basically, after about an hour, we had the team agreeing on how they would proceed and how they needed each other and how the how they needed the coaches and the coaches needed them and what it what it would take for a team to win a gold medal, to actually win the win the tournament. And it would take all of them agreeing. So we set up a a page like a contract that said, this is what we will do. And, and it really talked about teamwork and working with the coach. Well, that's basically what it is and how they would train, et cetera, and their approach to, to how they would play the game. And after the nine weeks, they won Fiji's first gold medal at the South Pacific Games. <laughs> now, I wow. can't take full credit for that. Yeah. He had some other help. But uh, when we talked and he saw me later, he said we couldn't have done it without the relationship theory and the, and the work in building mm-hmm. the team. The team needed to buy in, which they did, right? They uh, did. Yeah. Well, their backs were against the wall because they knew they weren't playing well. Yeah. They knew they could not win playing the way they were. It's mm-hmm. the same thing as in other organizations. Say, we've tried everything that we know and nothing's working. We'll do anything you say. And mm-hmm. they did. And they wound up playing some very good basketball. So I'm curious, you, you said you wouldn't go into too much detail, but the, the exercise at the beginning, tell me a little bit more about that. This was to demonstrate to them that they weren't going to win unless they were a team? That's was right. Huh? Um, well, the exercise that brought everybody together is to get everyone individually to simply write down what they want to happen, what they thought should happen, mm. the, four, the four or five things that had to happen that they would live and die for mm. in order for that team. And then you just go through a process of listing everything on the board, just every one of their answers on the board, and then you score them. And you get those with the top scores down to a certain point, and then you vote on them so that everybody agrees. It has to be unanimous that we will support these particular things. And you don't stop until you get the four, five, or 10, or 15, and for them it was more like 15 things that they said, we will live by this, even down to not smoking. Some yeah, of them interesting. smoked. <laughs> interesting, yeah. Which for an athlete, that's not, that's not great. So originally I had envisioned you out there having them dribble or something around cones or something, but uh, this was, and that illustrates that uh, mental and of the heart, uh, those things are very powerful. Well, we did. I mean, we did get on the court okay. to demonstrate what it means uh, to cooperate and do the things that the coach says. Okay. But the coach was the one. We, did, we weren't the coaches. We were yeah. just there to assist in defining what it meant for these things to happen on the court. Uh, but the coach was the one that was directing that. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. That's retired USU professor Richard Ratliff. He will uh, stay with us for the hour. Following a break, we're going to bring in former state representative Ed Red and former Logan City Councilman Herm Olson. 
They're going to be uh, telling us uh, how they and others have successfully reached across the aisle to get good things done. We'd love to get your comments on this program. Uh, you can reach us by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. We'll have more following this break. This is a one-minute preview of Episode 5 of Debunked. I'm Tim Light, and I'm joined by Dr. Patrick Green. The myth we're debunking today in one minute is addiction can be cured if you have enough willpower. I don't think that we would see as much suffering, pain, death, loss, if it was something that was as easy as just trying harder. Any chronic disease involves change in function of some organ. In this case, it's the brain. Any other illness that we treat, we're willing to use medications to try and restore a more normal level of function. And we're talking about opiate dependence in particular and the use of either methadone or buprenorphine. And those medications are absolutely life-saving. The refusal to acknowledge addiction as a chronic illness presents barriers in access to life-saving interventions, such as medication for addiction treatment and other harm reduction practices. Join us for the full debunking of this myth on Episode 5 of Debunked. You can find the episode on the podcast app, upr.org, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast this year in January. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Retired USU professor Richard Ratliff has developed what he calls the theory of relationism, which he hopes will help us bridge the many divides we're experiencing in our increasingly polarized society. Uh, we're now going to uh, uh, keep on Dr. Ratliff with us. We will bring in now State Representative Ed Red, uh, former State Representative Ed Red, and former uh, Logan City Councilman Herm Olson uh, to give us some examples of uh, working across the aisle. So in this part of the program, we want to uh, talk about application and the, therefore stories, experiences. Um, so I don't know who wants to start. Maybe uh, no. they're both pointing <laughs> to each other. If, okay. If you want awesome stories, I am quickly <laughs> deferring to Dr. Red. <laughs> I have, uh, Herm Olson, I've heard you tell awesome stories <laughs> before. So uh, well, we can, let's start with uh, Dr. Red. Sure. So I, I don't know. There's... I'm, in, in my experience in the legislature, I was there for six years, and it was extremely interesting that when I started as a freshman legislator, I thought I had all these great ideas, and, and I was going to go down there and make some changes and whatnot, and uh, I quickly learned that <laughs> at least 50% or more of my ideas were really not such great ideas, and the way I learned that is just by presenting them to people and talking about them and finding out what all the problems were with the ideas and how they, although they seemed good on the surface, they didn't turn out to work out so well. I, I would say of the bill files that I filed, I probably abandoned 50 or 60 percent of them by the time I'd kicked the idea around with other people. And so talking to people about issues and concerns and problems uh, and realizing that you don't necessarily know everything about everything, which is something you learn really quickly in the legislature, <laughs> at, least I, at least I learned it pretty quickly anyway, uh, was, was, was really an interesting process. I um, I, after a year or two, I realized that um, everybody in that body, in the House of Representatives, and there's, you know, 70, um, 75 or 6 of us, but uh, the bottom line is we all come from different backgrounds, we all have different perspectives, and I learned really quickly that uh, I didn't know everything about everything. Hmm. Uh, and, and listening to what other people had to say, and considering their their perspectives was really helpful in trying to develop 
good policy, and, and it's, it's an ongoing, very slow process. You can't have that many people giving input on an idea and have it happen really rapidly unless it's a really simple problem with a simple solution, which very seldom is the case. So the, the, my, my experience that I thought was really interesting was, was what happened with the whole medical cannabis issue. Um, that really started back probably in 2013 or 2014 uh, when a group of mothers uh, came forward and, and wanted to propose the option of using, you know, artisanal, uh, uh, artisanal hemp extract, uh, cannabidiol, to treat seizures. And um, back in 2013 and 14, that wasn't really a – cannabidiol wasn't really widely known for anything, at least not in Utah. I don't know about in Colorado or other states. And, and my initial response to that was this is, this is just a ploy to, to legalize recreational use of marijuana, and I, I kind of went into the discussion with my, you know, with my fist doubled up ready to fight, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but then I started listening to the, you know, to the mothers and their stories and, and what they were going through and, and the kinds of problems they were trying to deal with with their children with, you know, complicated epilepsy problems. And I realized that, and then I started doing some research. I actually got online and looked up some, you know, academic articles on cannabidiol, some research articles, and realized, well, maybe this is something that might be useful or helpful. And then I read about the Stanley Brothers in Colorado and their, their you know, production of hemp and extraction of cannabidiol. And I started thinking, well, maybe this isn't such a, a, a bad idea. So it took, it took a whole session for me to work through that process and get to the point where I could support that. But it was a, but it was a process. It wasn't something that happened overnight uh, but the process was basically talking to people and listening to people and and uh, realizing that my preconceived ideas about something maybe weren't always correct and uh, that happened numerous other times during the you know the six years of service especially during the last year when we you know worked through the the you know proposition two and then the the house bill 3001 uh, which was the legislature's version or you know uh, what they call is a uh, you know compromise bill or, or kind of a alteration of proposition two, and that was a really interesting process too. And and if you want, we can talk more about that one. But I just think the important thing I learned from all this is that um, if you go into a conversation deciding that you're right and everybody else is wrong, uh, and it, it probably is not going to go very far. You're not going to get very much done. Number one and number two, the outcome is probably not going to be very good. And uh, and that's why having a whole bunch of people beat up an idea, in the case of the House of Representatives, 76 people beating up an idea, um, that, was, that was pretty important in my experience. How do you, how do you beat up an idea and not beat up each other? Um, that's, that's, that's a that's key. A really, that's a really great question. I, 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 just, I think the first thing you, you learn, at least I learned pretty quickly, is that every one of those people uh, knew a lot more about something than I did. Every one of them had some background or experience where they had a, a, enormous expertise or enormous experience that I did not have. I mean, I have some experience in mental health issues and substance use disorder problems and, and physical, you know, you know, medical type issues and, and trauma issues and, and, you know, that sort of thing. But, but a lot of other people had, you know, personal experiences with all sorts of issues that I'd never experienced. And so talking with them was just a, an amazing experience. It, it didn't really matter to me much what part of they were from or which role they, they sat on in the house. Uh, they were all extremely devoted people who were trying to do the best they could to represent their constituents. And, uh, and I really enjoyed working with all of them. And we had lots of 
uh, I always knew it was a good bill uh, when we had somebody maybe on the far right as a sponsor in the House and the far left as a, as a sponsor in the Senate says, well, this bill's, I'm not going to bother reading this bill <laughs> <laughs> because I've got, I've got people from both ends of the political spectrum who think this is a good idea. And I know that it's gone through the committee hearing, so I'll read it and at least understand what they're talking about before I vote on it. But but to see people from, you know, divergent political, uh, you know, positions come together and work on something and figure something out was really an interesting process and a really healthy process. Mm. And it happened quite often, actually. It wasn't like it was a rarity. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's heartening to hear. Uh, I wonder if you tell me, before we, before we leave your experience, turn to Herr Wilson, um, can you tell me, was there somebody on the other side, somebody that you felt had an idea that was wrong or misguided in, in this um, that you interacted with? And then, then your views... Not only of the of the issue changed over time, but but perhaps of that person. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is that's a really good point. When a when when an idea is first presented, you, you bring your own perspective into that idea and say, well, this is obviously a bad bill, or we shouldn't even talk about this. Um, and if you start talking to the sponsor of the bill, uh, which is what I did mostly, I said, whenever there whenever a bill came up I didn't like, I had two options: I either vote against it where I could actually talk to the person and figure out what they're trying to do and see if I could get them to change the bill so I could vote for it, you know? And, and I tried to do that quite a bit, especially in, you know, like, the, the juvenile justice reform bill. We had, I had a lot of input from local constituents. I worked with Representative Snow on that one for, for a while and, and got a few changes made. Not everything that we necessarily wanted in Cache County because we had a different perspective than Salt Lake County and, you know, the Wasatch Front had. But I was able to make a few changes, and, and, and once you, once I learned really quickly, once you change somebody else's bill, you have to vote for it, right? <laughs> you can't just go in there and make changes and then vote against it. I mean, I did that once. It was a real, it was a real disaster. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I got called on the rug, you know, I got called on the carpet by the person, you know, the bill sponsor says, Ed Red, you went and changed my bill in committee, and then you voted against it, you know? <laughs> anyway, so, so I, I made that mistake once, and I, I severely regretted it because I realized it was very disingenuous to work with somebody to make modifications on their on their idea and then and then vote it down. That was not a good thing. So I, I found that it was much better to try and work with people that had maybe a, you know a, a view different than yours and see if you could get to, to come to some common ground so that you could support what they were trying to do. Because lots of times it's not always black and white. Most of the time it's not black and white. Um, uh, and and most of the time when we vote yes or no on a bill in the legislature, most of the time I found myself being like 40%, 60%, or 45%, 55%, and I had to sort of make a decision because it wasn't like I totally liked the idea. It wasn't like I totally didn't like it, but I had to make a decision. And so lots of times in situations where I had some concerns about a bill, rather than just voting no, I would go to the bill sponsor and say, hey, what do you think about this? And sometimes they'd be open to suggestions, and sometimes they wouldn't, and then I'd just have to go my, my way. But we never got angry about it. We never got angry. It never was like, you know, I'm going to you know, get back or get even with you or something like that. That just, I just didn't see that happen hardly ever, and it was really a, a, a good process. I mean, there were certain rules of, of conduct, too. We had under, there were written rules, but we also understood that, you know, we were not – allowed on the floor of the house or in committee meetings to you know to question somebody's motives or 
or suggest that somebody had ulterior motives for doing something. And we, we, were, we basically had to you know, discuss bills in a very orderly manner with a lot of respect, and that became part of the culture. So part of this is developing a culture of respect and ability to listen to people who may not see things the same way we do and understand that, you know what, maybe we're wrong and they're right. And that happened lots of times hmm. where I figured out, hey, I was wrong about this. I need to change my vote or I need to, you know, reconsider this. Anyway. Yeah, well, appreciate that. that uh, that's uh, very helpful to hear that that's uh, going on. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're searching for solutions to the increasing polarization in our society. Uh, earlier in the hour, we heard uh, an outline of uh, theory of relationism developed by retired USU professor Richard Ratliff. He's uh, with us for the hour. And uh, right now we're talking with former State Representative Ed Red and former Logan City Councilman Herm Olson. Love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll have more following this break. You may have heard Utah Public Radio and Bridgerland Audubon Society are presenting the Grown Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest. All of Utah's wild birds rely on native plants in the wild and in our parks and gardens. This art contest is celebrating that beauty. The winning design will be printed on an educational bookmark that will be distributed to Utah libraries, local fourth graders, and online available for you to download. For all of the details, go to upr.org. Join us here on Utah Public Radio throughout the week for Utah State University Extension's Ask an Expert, featuring timely information from raising your own backyard chickens to keeping our waterways clean and tips promoting mental wellness at work. If you've missed the latest segment for the week, you can find all the Ask an Expert features on our website, upr.org, and on our UPR app. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast this year in January. Glad you're with us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment now with the retired USU professor Richard Ratliff, former state representative Ed Red, and former city councilman, Logan City Councilman Herm Olson. Uh, Herm Olson, tell us a story. <laughs> if, if you would. Well, let me uh, start with a postscript to the story uh, that uh, Ed introduced, and that was regarding medical cannabis. Uh, as an attorney, I once had a client who had uh, long hair and a beard, kind of a scraggly, hippie-looking guy, uh, come in to see me uh, who had been charged with possession of marijuana. And that he's exactly the kind of guy you would expect to look like a person charged with possession of marijuana. And he said, but wait a minute, wait a minute. There's, he said there's something else going on. Uh, and he parted his beard and parted his hair. And I could see these uh, sort of wounds on his scalp and on his face, open sores. And he said, I've got lupus. I suffer from lupus. Consequently, I wear my hair long and wear a beard just to hide these uh, outbreaks that were not very sightly. And he said, now there's a medication uh, that uh, I can take to help control lupus. And I take it. 
but it has a side effect for me. And that side effect is that uh, I suffer uh, from spontaneous projectile vomiting. Uh, a notion I frankly hadn't thought about or heard of and, uh, and didn't know anything about, except he said, he said, last week I was driving through Sardine Canyon and wham, it just uh, suddenly there was a stream of vomit that hit the, my windshield and I almost crashed. And he said, I've found over the years that if I smoke a marijuana cigarette a half an hour prior to ingesting my lupus medication, it controls this vomiting situation. Uh, and, and that's good for me in my life. The problem is that the police, uh, just looking at him and profiling him, will pull him over, find some excuse to look, and they will find a little bit of marijuana. Never uh, enough for a distribution charge, but just possession. He'd try and explain, look, I've got this problem. And they'd go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, here's your citation. You had to appear in court. He had a multiple of citations. And, um, and uh, the, the point of this story is that it turns out, I don't know if he even remembers this, but Dr. Red was his doctor. And I contacted uh, Dr. Red. And actually, uh, Dr. Red was the second doctor because there was another doctor who previously had treated this fellow. And they both confirmed to me, yeah, this is a problem. Uh, I know that you can get pills uh, of the same uh, THC content as marijuana uh, sort of a thing. And and uh, he said, we have tried every configuration of that we can. We'll have him take a pill, cut it in half, cut it in quarters, any level of, of ingestion. And for whatever reason, it doesn't work. So smoking the marijuana uh, half an hour before seems to work. Well, Bottom line is the courts were completely unsympathetic, but the medical community in the form of uh, Dr. Red and the predecessor understood and recognized, okay, there is a legitimate medical basis for this issue. And so years later, when it came up uh, in the legislature, uh, boom, we had at least a partial solution to the problem. This is not recreational use, and it wasn't in this man's case. Ultimately, he resolved his dilemma by moving to Thailand. Wow. <laughs> because the Utah courts uh, simply were unsympathetic. And, uh, and so, uh, as it turns out, he has now come back. But anyway, I'm just saying, uh, it begins, this whole uh, legislative evaluation begins with open minds. And I personally appreciated uh, uh, Ed's open mind in looking at the real-life situation here. In my history, um, I've worked both in Washington, D.C. for several years and 
and then for uh, I've been on the Logan City Council uh, now for 12 years. And so I, I've sort of got this national uh, view, a very local view, and uh, Ed brings a, a state legislature view, which I think is uh, uh, important and uh, helps us see sort of across the span of uh, political issues ranging from, uh, you know, whether or not to uh, have a plastic recycling program in Logan uh, versus the development, uh, for instance, of a national uh, synthetic energies bill uh, in Washington, D.C. So there's a a whole range of uh, issues that, that cross this this. The, the the problem that uh, Dr. Ratliff describes, and that is, how do you take people with very different views and try and help them see a common ground? And that's a that's a pretty tall order in today's environment, nationally at least. I think that's a key. I want to turn to Dr. Ratliff. So. Seems to be we we've heard some helpful stories, right? To the local level, state level. Um, seems to be the national level where where things are getting worse and not better. And I, I wonder why you think that is. I I, I have a th- I'll, I'll throw out a th- theory of my own, <laughs> which is that the the relationships are better at the state and local level. I don't know. If people are live together maybe, and at the national level. They don't, but I'd be interested to hear your view. I'm just thinking about that idea here for a moment. Um, I think I have seen bad relationships at all levels. I've seen local politicians um, fight, even to a level that's not very pretty. It's ugly, and it's divisive. I've seen state politicians do the same thing, but I've also seen local and state politicians and national politicians work on the level that these guys are talking about, where it is possible to work together. I think we're getting a picture uh, from news media and various sources of the bad relationships because they may be, I don't know, they're the loudest somehow or other. also worked at, it reminds me of a situation where I was in California working with a manufacturing company and there were two department heads that were at loggerheads. They simply couldn't get along together. And there were, there were two departments that had to work together for the company even to function. And while, as I was working with them, uh, talking about some things, some basic ideas, they said, oh, but, but don't tell any of our workers because if they knew this was going on, we couldn't get anything done. <laughs> Now, at the same time, it requi- I was required, just because of the process, to talk to a lot of the workers. And the workers said, now, don't tell the bosses about this, but we, ne- we can't involve them. We go directly to the people in the other department to get the work done. If they knew we were doing that, we'd be in real trouble. So you have both, part- both sides in a very local. This is not a citywide. This is a company institution where the bad relationships were hindering things, but the good relationships, and it turned out there were more good ones than bad ones. The bad one was simply the the department heads. They were in influential positions, but everybody else 
was doing the best they could to move the ship along the along the sea, uh, and it worked well. So I, I've seen it at all levels, but I'm hopeful. I'm extremely hopeful because I think everybody knows that good relationships are more are better for everybody than bad relationships. I mean, it's just common sense. In fact, I've been told that. Richard, everybody knows this. I think sometimes when we get to politics, we forget some of the things that we know, and we get involved in a culture, uh, con- you know, a conflictive culture. Um, if, we, we, if we know that, we can do better. I'm confident that we can do better, as these stories indicate. Uh, Hermolts, I want to follow up, and Dr. Red as well later. Um, said Dr. Ratliff is very hopeful. Are, are you also hopeful with this preface? Throwing cold water on on this hope. Um, <laughs> well, it, it, it's it's gotten at least oh. national level it seems to have gotten very tribal. Yeah, and and demonizing each other. Uh, hopeful, but not terribly optimistic in the short term. Uh, and let me sort of preface my my thoughts with the notion that my experience at the national level is now practically ancient history, because I was back there in the mid seventies, from seventy two and eight to eighty, and uh, and and I will say that my experience with working on Capitol Hill and working with congressional staff, senatorial staffs with bureaucrats, I found that the vast majority of the people with whom we worked on either side of the aisle were good, decent, hardworking people, genuinely committed to doing the best thing for their district or their state and their country. Um, It worked pretty well. I know that uh, I worked for a congressman from Utah named uh, Gun McKay. And, and uh, you know, he, he was uh, this kind of farmer, rancher, uh, school teacher from Huntsville. And he had absolutely no experience with maritime industry and wharfs and harbors and stuff. But he was uh, on the Interior Appropriations Committee, and consequently we had to work with people from uh, Baltimore and Philadelphia, and they they had inland ports. Uh, So uh, whenever—and Gunn was the chair of this subcommittee that worked on these issues. When we'd have issues come up dealing with ports— we didn't know squat about it. I mean, we, we were from the desert out in the, the Great Basin area, but we would go to people who had experience in Baltimore and New York and Philadelphia and would say, hey, what's this about? What's going on? And likewise, when the Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management issues came up and somebody from Baltimore's going, I, I can't even spell that. What's going on, Gun?" And would reach across the aisle because we trusted people. And it was based on a very personal relationship. That was before the Newt Gingrich era uh, when uh, Congress worked Monday through Friday and then going to get on a plane, fly to Utah for Saturday and Sunday, come back for a Monday session. Uh, after uh, uh, and they got to know people. Their families lived in the D.C. area, 
I mean, physically, their children were being raised there, going to school there. They knew each other. They knew that the, they'd go to the same gym to work out, that their wives would interact together. Uh, and it was based on the the actual real warm body relationship that uh, uh, Dr. Ratliff talks about. But uh, starting with his chairmanship his, uh, of the Speaker of the House, uh, uh, Gingrich introduced a, a kind of an approach that said, we're only going to work three days a week in Washington. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you're here for votes, and then get out, go home, and keep your families in your district. Don't bring them to Washington, D.C. And it changed the whole dynamic of interpersonal relationships because now people would spend most of their time back in their districts, which at one level was good. But in terms of interacting with people and learning and knowing who they were as individuals, it really changed the landscape in a negative way. And and I think that's why um, this tribal notion is an easier one to fall into. Why personal insults and and accusations of motive are are so prevalent now and so hostile now, because it's not based on the fact that you know this person at a real life level and see that he is really trying to do his best. So I think we've taken a step backward in that regard. Doctor Red, what do you what do you think? Uh on any of this, maybe starting with uh, at least your view of the national it's really, level. I, mean, I think Herm's points are probably, I mean, I've, I've not spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., ex- except as a tourist, so I don't know too much about what things are like back there, you know, for example, on the floor of the House of Representatives or Congress or whatever. But I think I think it's, you know, really important that, I, I, I was just thinking as Herm was talking, when we have a 45-day session, except for Saturday and Sunday, uh, we are down together. And we become really close physically and, and emotionally because we have to, because you're, you're around the same people all the time. And so you get to know them really well. I mean, you get to know their perspectives. You get to know their expertise. You get to know you know, what kinds of things they're passionate about and, 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 and what things you actually agree on, what things you might disagree on. And, and, and it becomes a situation where, where you don't take it personally. You never take disagreements. I never felt like I had to take a disagreement with one of my colleagues on a personal level or get angry about it or frustrated with it. Sometimes I caught myself doing that, but I asked myself, well, why am I, why am I feeling this way? You know, and, and because at the end of the day, like, you know, these people are all, I, I realize they're, they're, they're in, in many ways they're similar to me in that, uh, you know, they're, they're working pretty hard at this. They're away from their family. They're away from their jobs. They're away from their businesses or whatever they're working at. And, uh, and, and, and I don't know, I just feel like, you know, having that cohesiveness is pretty important, even though you may be divided into parties or caucuses or whatever the kind of thing is. At the end of the day, you spend most of your time in the same room with, with people with diverse perspectives and viewpoints on issues, and you start to realize that, that you really don't know everything about everything. It's just, I just, I just really thought that was, you know, I mean, maybe this whole idea of spending more time together is pretty important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it sounds like it. Yeah, Dr. Ratliff. You ask how hopeful or how pessimistic can we be in the situation that we're in, and it's, it's a very difficult situation. We see it every day. 
uh, the fights, and it can get loud, and it can get angry, and it can be divisive in many ways, even beyond politics. But I'm sure we've all heard the the term um, cautiously optimistic and hopeful. I I think if we see right now, we see in the United States very low voter turnout, and it's easier for people who may be the loudest to attract the most votes in some situations for a variety of reasons and voter attitudes. But it seems to me, I personally, during 2020, getting ready for this next election, I'm going to be looking for candidates who have the best relationships in the most places. I'm not looking for someone who can garner power um, because power tends to build divisiveness. Because if I know you're about to attack me, then I'm going to defend myself. Uh, if I know that we're going to work together to solve the problem, then I can focus on the problem that we're, that we're trying to, to deal with. And that becomes the more important of the issues. And as I look at politics this year, and I'm asking everyone around me to do the same thing, let's look for candidates who build the best relationships in the most places, even with those who may oppose us in some particular way. And, I, and I'm hopeful because it only takes one year of elections to move a long way to changing the whole climate. If we start looking for that and we voters start turning out in mass uh, and we change our expectations, I fully expect that the political community to respond and those who are doing it now, such as these two here, they know, they know how to work with good relationships and make things happen. Others, I think, can learn the lesson, and we as a, as a politic can learn the lesson as well. So I'm hopeful. And what, what you're saying, it comes, down, it comes back to us. It's us. Uh, uh, We're in voters, charge. We, we have the power. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah, very good. You know, I wanted to share this notion. This comes... Uh, at least you guys um, remember, you're all old enough to remember a guy named John Dean. <laughs> I remember John Dean, John yes. Dean, yes. He, he, was the, mm-hmm. he was President Nixon's lawyer, and uh, he's the one who warned uh, President Nixon that there is a cancer growing on the presidency, meaning the corruption that was surrounding the whole Watergate experience with uh, John Mitchell, John Ehrlichman, Bob Haldeman, uh, uh, Chuck Colson, a, a whole a whole team of people who ended up being criminally prosecuted and spending time in jail. And John Dean was likewise criminally prosecuted and was sent to prison. And uh, he wrote a book called Blind Ambition which I think is uh, indicative of the attitude of uh, not only then, but today, just blind ambition. But I love this quote uh, that he cites uh, speaking generally about the notion of of, uh, us versus them. He said, at first sight, it is curious that our own offenses— should seem to be so much less heinous than the offenses of others. I suppose the reason is that we all know the circumstances that have occasioned them and so manage to excuse in ourselves what we cannot excuse in others. 
from our own defects, we condone them when we come to judge ourselves. We have left out everything that offends our vanity or would discredit us in the eyes of the world. How scornful we are when we catch someone out telling a lie. But who can say he has never told one himself or even a hundred lies? <laughs> There's not much to choose between men. We are all a hodgepodge of greatness and littleness, of virtue and vice, of nobility and baseness. I know that if I set down every action in my own life and every thought that had crossed my mind, the world would consider me a monster of depravity. That goes back to what Dr. Red was saying, keep an open mind that the person opposite you is is like yourself. We appreciate uh, Herm Olson, Ed Red, and Richard Ratliff for joining us on the program uh, today. Thanks for listening today. As part of Project Resilience, Utah Public Radio and the Center for Persons with Disabilities presents the Mental Health and Developmental Disability National Training Center's Crossroads podcast, including professional advice from researchers and experts and disability rights advocates on ways to address the needs of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. In the latest episode, Janet Schaus, a program coordinator at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center and parent advocate, shares her ideas for a healthcare professional toolkit. Find this and other episodes by going to our website, upr.org, and linking to our Project Resilience programming. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.